Thank you, team, for leading us in worship today, and welcome into MCC. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name's Trent. I have the unbelievable privilege of being the lead pastor here at MCC. And today we're going to be diving into a passage out of the book of Hebrews. So if you got your Bible, grab your Bible, go to Hebrews chapter 6. That's where we're going to be. I'll give you a little bit of time to turn there. Uh, here at MCC, we believe that the best thing that we have down here on planet Earth is the Word of God. And the God of the Word is with us this morning as well. And so we're going to dive into that. I'm believing and hoping and praying that he's going to speak to you, communicate with you, because this Word is not just words on a page. This is a living, active Word of the one true God. And so if you got a Bible, go to Hebrews, way back there in the back. Hebrews chapter 6. There's no shame in using the concordance or whatever that thing is called. Index, I think. I don't know. I went to public school. I'm proud of it. I'm not ashamed of it. I'm proud. My kids go to private school, so I don't know. Anyway, hopefully you're at Hebrews chapter 6. And um, today, we are going to start at verse 9 and then go through the rest of this chapter. All right? This is the Word of God. Verse 9, chapter 6. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Now, what he just got through doing was kind of rebuking them, like making them almost scared whether or not, whether or not they were good with God. Like he's, he's giving them this harsh warning. He's telling them to be serious about their faith. If they're not serious, there's, they're not going to be able to persevere. He's making those things very clear to them. And he, if you just kind of read it surface level, it almost sounds like he was going bad cop there for a second. And here in verse 13, you see him go back good cop. And he changes his tone a little bit as he hopefully has gotten his very serious point Across verse 13, he's saying, beloved, or verse 9, he's saying, hey, I'm speaking to you in this way. It's kind of hard way, beloved, but we feel sure of better things. So the, all the bad stuff I'm talking about, I'm, I'm thinking that better stuff is actually coming to you. Things that belong to salvation, verse 10. For God is not unjust, so to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. Verse 11, and we desire that each one of you show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope to the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience, faith and patience, inherit the promises. Verse 13 through 20 are gonna be our primary passage for today, but I want you to be able to see the context and know what he was leaning into and talking to. So this is our primary passage today, 13 through 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, attained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation." So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heir of the promise, that's Abraham and his lineage, the unchangeable character of his, that's God's, purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement, have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. For we have this 
as a sure and steadfast anchor for our soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of God, and this is what we're going to lean into today. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I ask in these moments that you would give us your guidance, your wisdom, and allow you to fully illuminate this passage to us. I pray that the same heartbeat, the same emphasis, the same point that you wanted when you inspired who wrote this years and years ago, I pray that the same heartbeat would be what is happening here in this room, that we would see what we need to see in the same way that the original readers of this would have saw what they needed to see. God, we thank you that you are not changing, you are not shifting, that you, have, uh, that you don't need to be recalibrated, but you are a God who remains the same from generation to generation, and this word is living and active. And today I pray that in the lives of your people here, it would come to life. Father, I pray for the, the wayward and desperate person who came in this morning looking for hope. I pray that that hope is not found in a new set of rules or a new religion to try, but that hope is found in you. Jesus, you are hope, and we need you this morning. In your name, amen. You know, it's been said at times that a promise is only as good as the one who is making it. You ever heard that before? If you haven't heard it, you've at least experienced it. You hear a promise from somebody, whether it be a boss or uh, someone you're in a romantic relationship with or a politician, and those are the ones where we go, Mm. Um, we, we hear these promises and, and people make a lot of promises. Companies make a lot of promises. Products make a lot of promises. And it's been said that a promise is only as good as the one who's making the promise. And why they're saying that and why that's a phrase is because we know that in order for us to actually trust and depend on the promise that we would hope to see come to fruition, it's really dependent and contingent on, do I trust the character of the person who's actually making this prom- this promise. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, this idea of trusting people when they make promises is something I've struggled with basically my entire adult life. And I don't know it's because of what I experienced as a kid, but I ran away from home in seventh grade because my parents didn't keep a promise. It wasn't because they were mean. It wasn't because they hit me. It wasn't because of some of the myriad of other things that actually happened in my home. But the reason I ran away was that a promise wasn't kept. And you know, like I know, that it just does something in your heart and in your mind and in your viewpoint of somebody else when they promise you something and they don't keep it. And what happens to us, because we live down here on broken, fallen kind of messed up sometimes, planet earth, and we interact with other people, we have relationships and encounters and promises that get made to us. And if we're not careful, it can develop trust issues inside of us. I know for me personally, that's been one of the biggest things that has hindered and caused hiccups in my relationship with God is the trust issues that I have. After my dad passed away, one of the things that I did was I went and got some counseling and I was talking through and walking through with the counselor and just kind of navigating some of the uh, stuff that was going on in life that time and even unpacking some of the stuff that happened in childhood so we can figure out how to move forward in life and not have this be something that, that undermines or causes a, a problem for the future. 
And he said, Trent, I think one of the, the roots here is you have trust issues. And I remember just like, it did, I didn't have to think about it or process it. I just said out loud, how can I trust you when you say that? Um, and he was like, <laughs> it's like, you don't know me. You, I've only been here like 30 minutes. Like, how do you know this? And, you know, and that's something that we all navigate through is the burns that we've got from people who made promises, promises to us and didn't live up to those. But let's, let's, for a second, not let them fully off the hook, but realize who's also on the hook with them. When I begin to look in the mirror of my own life and I look at the scales, honestly, I have some parents who broke some promises to me. I have some, some uh, bosses who broke some promises to me. I have some friends who broke some promises to me. But the person in my life who's broke the most promises to me is me. The things that I've told myself I'll do are the things I've told myself I'll never do. And if we're not careful, we come into our relationship with our heavenly father. We come into a relationship with the God of all creation and we bring into that relationship all the baggage of the unmet promises of every, uh, everybody in creation that we've had. We let our trust issues with humanity manifest into trust issues with divinity and that can really hinder our faith. And so the pastor to the church at Hebrews is gonna try to do in his passage, in this passage of scripture, what I'm gonna try to do today is to detach our trust issues with humanity so that they don't become trust issues with divinity so that we can look to a holy, righteous, perfect God and say, God, I trust in you. You are faithful, right, and true God, and you do not lie, and you keep your promises to me. Therefore, I can hope in you because I trust in you. So if you got a Bible, I invite you to turn Hebrews chapter six, hopefully you're already there. You got to figure out, we're going to walk through this. Now, in order to understand the emphasis that he's placing and the things that he's doing to try to get them to fix their gaze on Jesus, you have to understand what is going on and and then the context in which he writes. In order to do that, I need you to actually go up a little bit to verse 11 and 12 of chapter six. Let's read it together. He says, and we, he's talking about the people who are writing. He's saying, this is me, you, God, all of us. We desire that each one of you to show the same earnestness, underline that, earnestness. He's talking about grittiness. He's talking about the tenacity, a heart cry that is deepest, most root motivation is solid, is earnest, is genuine to have the full assurance of hope to the end. He says, I want you to earnestly go after this full assurance of hope that you will have to the very end. Verse 12 so that you may not be sluggish. Now, remember when he's talking about this idea of sluggish, this is the second time he's used this word here in talking to the people. It's this delay from when you get told something to do and then you actually obey it. We know this as parents. This is when you tell your kids, hey, I need you to go upstairs and brush your teeth. And you go, you know, do something, wash a dish or something else and you look around, they're still downstairs. You go, did you hear me? Now, you're not asking, did their ears comprehend the auditory wavelengths and everything else? When you say, did you hear me? What you're really saying is you haven't moved yet, which is the point that the pastor's trying to make to them when he calls them sluggish. It's not that you haven't heard the commands of God. It's it's not that you don't know what he's telling you to do. It's that there's a distance, a gap, a delay in what he's told you to do, and you're actually doing it. He's saying we can't grow sluggish in our walk with Christ, but instead of being sluggish, we need to be Imitators. We need to look around, look back in the rearview mirror, look at our history, look at our story. Be imitators of those who through faith and patience, faith 
and patience. You wanna underline two things? Really, don't underline faith and patience. Just circle them both because I'm telling you, they go hand in hand. You will not see real patience unless there's some faith in there, all right? And you haven't had real patience, and you know if you had it because it was faith. It takes some faith to have patience, amen? He says, but we need to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherited the promise. So what he's wanting to do is to hold on to this full assurance of hope to the end. And he says, remember guys, look back downstream at what's happened and know that there are other people who through faith and patience have inherited a promise. And we want you to be ones who inherit this promise. Now, why in the world do you think he's having to tell them to hold on to this hope and be in, have endurance and be earnest in all these things? Here's why he's not saying this. Because out there in Hebrews land, they're all just sitting with a beach. They're on the shores of Italy, just, just drinking it up, you know, cold drink in the hand, sunglasses on, just living their best life. You know, every time they cast out a line, they reel in a fish, just great life. Everybody thinks they're great. They show up, you know, they're, they're throwing out tips and money like it's nothing. They're just living this great old life. Those are not the people you have to go to and go, hey, I need you to hold on with perseverance. You know, those people don't need that message. They're like, hey, uh, it's kind of good right now. So what's happening here is their life is hard and it's about to get harder. And this is the pastor's plea to them is, guys, the Holy Spirit has let me know that I have to tell you that life down here following Jesus will not be sunshine and rainbows. To re-quote what Jesus said, in this world, you, not maybe, not if you don't do the right things, no, everybody, good, bad, indifferent, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And the pastor is relaying that message to them and saying, this word, you're gonna have trouble, guys. And we know even through studying history alongside the Bible that there most definitely was trials and tribulations that was getting ready to affect this small fledgling house church that was where this passage of scripture was written to. And so all of that is happening in this moment. And he's telling them, lean in, guys, lean in, guys. And he says, here's what we need to do. He goes, we need to be imitators of those who in our past, in our heritage, in our history, have actually received this blessing and received this promise because they waited patiently with faith and they received this blessing. He says, you, basically he's saying, you come from a bloodline where people are willing to wait patiently on God and we need to look backwards and see how they waited and not just go, oh, look how great their faith is, but go, oh, great, let's look at how faithful that God is. If he got them through that, he can get us through this. So he turns their attention to, in verse 13, the hero of faith that everybody would have known. If you're a Hebrew person, this is the one who you look at as basically the father of your whole tribe and lineage. He points their attention back to Abraham. That's why he starts there to explain this is the one who got the promise. This is one who inherited this. And he's gonna explain what God did through Abraham and then explain what he is doing and continuing to do, not just for the Hebrew church, but for us as a church through Jesus now. For when God made a promise to Abraham, 
Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and I will multiply you. Now, I I cannot spend all my time today going back and recapping the story of Abraham, but I'm gonna do my best to just kind of summarize. Abraham is a guy who is old, 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 dusty, old. And he's not married to some 20 something, 30 something girl with just like, I'm old, but I'm gonna pull those Al Pacinos and have a kid at 75 years old. He is old, old, and he's married to somebody who is old, old named Sarah. They're both old. And if it sounds like I'm making a lot of emphasis about how old they are, you should read scripture. It makes even more of an emphasis about how old they are. And God comes to this guy not because of anything great that he had done, not because he had a great 401k, he'd invested millions of money, you know, not because any of those things. He shows up to this guy and he says, Abraham, you have found favor with me and I'm gonna make you the father of many nations. I'm going to bless you and I'm gonna multiply you. And God does this. Again, it doesn't make any sense. Abraham and his wife both hear this and they laugh, which is ironic because they eventually have a kid. Abraham is 100 years old And Sarah is 90. Do not get images in your brain. (laughs) Stop. This is what happens. And like, and and like, and it wasn't one of those miraculous virgin birth kind of things. Like this is, they do the things, they have the baby. The baby is born and they name him Isaac, which means laughter because this whole situation is hilarious. Our God has a sense of humor. And I love this about him. She gives birth to this child. 100-year-old dad, 90-year-old mom. And this is the promise coming to fruition. I wanna talk to you about how this promise came to fruition. And thus, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. That's Isaac. Now, it says right here, this is a a verse that should make you kind of stop and go, hmm, if you really know the whole story. He patiently waited. Now, the story of Abraham that we tell in kids' ministry is that they patiently waited. The soap opera story that we tell at grown-up church, you see, y'all have read your Bible, way to go. We know that it wasn't so tidy, right? They patiently waited for a few years, but then Abraham has this moment with God where he's looking around, and he's like, nothing's happening. And he starts whining to God, He's gone. He basically says to God, I don't have anybody to give my inheritance to you. You've blessed me and, and I'm starting to get some stuff in my life, but I'm basically gonna have to just like sign everything over to the gardener when I die. <laughs> I still don't have a kid. And so Abraham signs on to this idea that Sarah has and Abraham does some stuff with a slave and she gets pregnant, hoping that this is gonna be the child of promise to which God clearly said, that's not how I'm doing it. Trust my way of doing it. And, it, and, and if you go back and even track through lineage and history, there, there are two, two dividing lines of two major world religions actually start and split here at Abraham and him stepping out of God's will and then him coming back and being faithful to God. So here's what I would say. If you fast forward through Abraham and the mistakes he made into what we now know, somehow this pastor of the church of Hebrews still says, Abraham waited patiently. And it's not just him saying this because he's on Abraham's PR team and he wants to make sure everybody still thinks about Abraham in a really nice way. 
The point that I believe he's trying to explain to them and I would express to you is that patient waiting does not have to be perfect waiting with God. Here's what I mean by that. Sometimes when God tells us something, God gives us a promise. Like he says, I'm gonna bless you and multiply you. You're gonna have kids. Sometimes he says, I'm gonna promote you to this next job. I'm gonna use this gift that I've given you to do these amazing things with. And he can tell us those things. You're gonna have this influence. You're gonna do these things. And for everybody in this room, I hope God has given you some sort of dream, some sort of promise that he's placed inside of your heart. He gives us those things. And sometimes it doesn't work out in our timing. And what we do is the very same thing that Abraham or Sarah do. We go try to figure it our way. We're like, God, your, your microwave is not operating as fast as I believe it should. And we go do things our way. And then most of us, we go, because I failed the promise, Holy Spirit convicts us when we sidestep God's will and his way. Holy Spirit convicts us. And you know what we do with the promise? We give up on the whole promise. And, and, and what I'm trying to hopefully maybe say to somebody here today is there's probably a promise in your past that you gave up on because you thought you had to wait perfectly for it instead of just waiting patiently. Now, again, don't be stupid and go back and make the same mistakes over again, but there may be some stuff in your past, some stuff that God really did promise to you, and you made a mistake. You failed. You, 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 you had a Hagar moment. And what God would, I believe, say to you today is, just because you weren't perfect didn't mean and doesn't mean that even right now, you can still come back and look to me as the God who gave you that promise and wait patiently on round two of it. So Abraham waits patiently, God delivers the promise. The pastor of the Church of Hebrews is gonna explain a little bit more about this whole oath thing in the next couple of verses. He says, people swear by something greater than themselves. I don't know where that went. I think they need to see it, guys. I don't, I don't know. Grab your Bible. Whoop. Hebrews 16, or six, verse 16. For people swear by something greater than themselves in all their disputes. An oath is final confirmation. What he's explaining to them here is... In their culture, if you want to make a promise, you had to swear by something. They didn't have DocuSign and, and all these legalese and, hey, there it is. Um, you didn't have all these things where you could do all that. And so what would happen, we did this on the playground when we were kids. We would say, you know, I swear on my mama's grave, you know, which is always dumb. Um, I swear on my little sister. I, I use that one a lot. Um, <laughs> in, in doing so, the authority of your swear and oath or promise was dictated by how high or how important the thing you swore was. So if, you're, if you say like, hey, I swear by my, my pinky toenail, it's like, no big deal. But if you're saying, I swear by my big toe, bigger deal. If you're saying, I swear by my whole right leg, even bigger deal. If you say, I swear by my body, bigger deal. Now, here's why and here's what would have happened in those times. The reason they would do these things, and sometimes it would and it come into account, is sometimes you would say, I swear by 15 of my sheep that I will keep this promise. What would happen if I didn't meet the promise to my 15 sheep? They're, they're gone. It, it was a way of ensuring that I'm gonna hold up my end of the bargain. And so what he's saying here is, is God is actually entering into a human system of making promises, and God swears by God and goes, I promise, God, God goes, I swear to me that I'm gonna keep this promise. And that's what he's trying to explain to them, that, that God 
was that trustworthy that he swore by this? And then verse 17, it says, so when God desired to show even more convincingly, so he's already swore by himself. Now he's saying he wants to double down on his promise to Abraham. He wanted to show even more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that's Abraham and Sarah and their lineage that would come through, the unchangeable characters of his perp- character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So God makes this initial promise to Abraham and God doubles down on that by making an oath. You can read this in Genesis chapter 15. It is a wild and weird story. Here's what they would do in order in this oath. And God set this all up. He says, Abraham, go get a heifer. Can we just say that together? Heifer, heifer, get a heifer. God is from the South, I believe. Um, Get a heifer, get a heifer, a ram and a goat and some birds, a couple birds. And what they would do in this covenant promise is you would take the heifer, the goat, and the ram, and you would cut it in half, all right? Not hind quarters to front quarters, like split it down the middle and put one over there, head over there, tail over there. You would split it half this way. Half a heifer over here, half a heifer over there, and blood everywhere. I don't know whose job that was that day, probably Abraham's, but half a heifer over here, half a heifer over there. You go down to the goat, half a goat over here, goat over there, ram over here, ram over there, and then maybe like one bird over here and bird over there. They didn't even bother cutting the birds in half. Now this is how God's setting this up. And the reason he's doing this is because this was like the ultimate oath. What would happen here, and the reason they did this was it was essentially God's way of saying, and people would do these oaths too, it was God's way of saying, Do you see how these animals are split in two and this is a bloody mess? If I don't keep this promise to you, Abraham, it will be to me as it is to these animals. If you don't keep this promise to me, Abraham, it will be to you as it is to these animals. And God does this whole thing. Abraham, if you go back and read the account, there's there's not necessarily even a sign of Abraham actually even doing the passing of through. God knocks Abraham out. And then God is the only one who goes through. There's this pot with fire. It's just weird imagery. And God is symbolic of God passing through and saying, I am going to not just make you a promise. I'm going to double down and make you an oath on blood. Significance coming in there. That I will keep my promises to you. So the, the pastor to the church in Hebrews is going, guys, Remember our story, remember our history. He, he actually is taking them all the way back to the beginning. He's going, hey guys, do you remember where God started this whole thing with this dusty old guy, Abraham, and his wife, Sarah, 190? You remember that? You remember how God kept his promise? You remember how God swore and then God promised all of these things and God came through? He says, we have to have the same earnestness, the faithful patience that he did. He goes on in verse 18, he's saying, so that by two unchangeable things, the two unchangeable things there, you're like, what what are we talking about? That's God's promise and God's oath, both the things that he made perfectly to Abraham in which it is impossible for God to lie. It didn't become impossible because he made two things. It was impossible at the first one, but it's doubly impossible now at the second one. We who have fled for refuge, again, this is uh, significant. This is him This is what we read to denote that there actually is stuff going on here in the Hebrew church. They're on the run. They're not, you know, they're not sitting on the beach drinking, you know, cold drinks, enjoying life and at the top of the food chain. He says, we've fled for refuge. But because we have a God who does not lie, because we have a God who keeps his promises, because we have a God who is trustworthy, we now might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to this hope that is set before us. Now we have a strong encouragement 
the strongest encouragement you could ever have, the strong encouragement that was on the mind of God when he saw Abraham and said, I've heard your prayers. I've heard every one of your wife's tears as she is mourned over her barren womb. I've heard you long, Abraham, for the days when you feel those little hands around your pinky. Abraham, I, I know how you long to hear the words Abba as you look in the eyes of your son. He's saying to the Hebrew church, go all the way back to the heart of the father who makes Abraham a father that you're now a part of as he leads and shows you to the father you have in God. And he's saying, if there ever was a strong encouragement, it's looking at what's been done in the past to give you hope as an anchor for your soul as you now look up into what may be coming and it doesn't look pretty. And this is the dichotomy of living life as we try to follow Christ. If we think we can just look at all of the hell that seems to be coming down the highway and make it through, we're crazy. Sometimes the, the, sometimes the only thing that keeps my faith holding on is actually looking in the rearview mirror and going, God, look how you came through. Oh God, look at, look at, look at what you pulled me out of. God, look at what I should have been. Look at, the, look at the sins that were attached to my family's last name that will die with me. Sometimes the rearview mirror is all you got when, when you look out the windshield and it looks sketchy. And he's telling them, hold on to this hope that we have. Now, let's talk about hope. Because our culture, man, that's, it's a four-letter word. Misused and abused and makes a lot of people really confused about what is Christian hope, what is God hope, not what is this hope stuff that we just kind of toss around down here on planet earth. So I wanna talk to you, I wanna teach you a little bit. There's objective hope and there's subjective hope. I'll start here on the subjective hope side because this is most of the hope that's tossed out in our culture. The best thing that comes to mind in this one to give you the best exemplification of, of objective hope in our culture and kind of how it runs at it, it's, it's when you see the commercial and it's, it's a, it's a baseball coach and he goes up to the, the little boy on the team and he kind of gets down eye, eye level and he says, hey, slugger, you're, you can do it. And then the kid gets up in the commercial with the, you know, the, the slow motion and, and the kid you know, cracks the ball and he scores the winning run and everybody's happy and then the, the screen fades and it says, hope, pass it on. That's our world's hope. It's this, I hope that the Braves win today. It's, I, I hope that the weather remains good. It's, it's this, this vague hope, like, ah, I just, I, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just hoping for good things. It's just this hope in stuff. It's just like out there. This is subjective. Your hope is different than my hope. You're hoping in different things than I'm hoping in. But what the Bible calls us to is not this subjective hope where everybody's out here just guessing what we hope in, hoping in the weather, hoping in good finances, hoping in getting out of debt, hoping in kid. What the Bible tells us is that the baseline thing that we are to hope in is not even a thing. It offers us objective hope, hope in a person, hope in Jesus. And so what he's laying out to here is, is we're not hoping in a thing. We're not hoping in even something that would happen, our hope is anchored, he's gonna explain in a second, to a human who, became, who was God and came to earth, died the death you should have died, rose victoriously over the death that you should have faced. That, that is, he, he's saying, hope is a person. 
He goes on to explain some things here in 19 and 20. He fully illuminates to them who this is. He says, for we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor. He's using nautical terms. We have this hope, this hope that we have in Jesus, this hope that is Jesus is a sure and steadfast anchor for our soul. Key word there, soul. It's a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, I know you read that the same way I read that this week and you go, there's a lot in there. That's deep. There's a lot of meat on that bones. Which is again, why the pastor to the church of Hebrews and me also three weeks ago roasted the church and said, some of you should be able to eat meat now, but y'all still need milk. We shouldn't come to a passage like this and just go, hmm, and kind of nod right, give that Christian move, that heifer, hmm, and know that there's a lot of stuff there, but at the same time go, I don't really know all of what that's about. I can tell that's a lot of important stuff there, but I like milk. <laughs> So I'm not gonna go chew on that. No, look, look, I'm, some of you guys, you're getting your grown-up teeth, okay? I'm gonna purposely leave some meat on this bone. I'm not gonna serve even the best portions of this meat to you today because I would love for you to have some amazing encounters with God this week as you chew, digest, and allow this verse to nourish your soul this week. I'm gonna do my best in a little bit of time I have left to be able to explain to you surface level what this actually means. But my prayer is that you take 19 and 20 and you let this get deep down into your soul as you chew and chew and chew and marinate on God's word this week, okay? So he says, we have a steadfast anchor for our soul. This something has, has connected us into something else. That's how anchors work, right? Uh, there's been a lot of technological advancements, but one of the things that has not yet been invented is wireless anchors. There's no Bluetooth anchors. An anchor only serves its purpose when it connects one thing to another thing. So he's saying, guys, we have this anchor. We have something that is connecting us to something greater than us. And it doesn't just connect. I love that he says this. He doesn't say, we just have an anchor. He says, we have an anchor for what? Our soul, this is something that is deeper than our flesh. Our flesh can hold on, can let go. Our flesh is prone to wonder. Our flesh makes mistakes. Our flesh doesn't wait perfectly. It barely even waits patiently. But he says, you have this anchor who has now gone and penetrated into the deepest, most real, most eternal part of you, your very soul. You are not a person in this room today who just happens to have a soul because you have a body. You happen to have a body because you actually have a soul. That soul is gonna spend an eternity somewhere, heaven or hell, and both of those places, it's gonna either spend its time there very long in either one of those places. And so we've got to make sure as people that our soul is anchored to the right place. He says, you've got an anchor for your soul, a hope that enters into the inner places. All right. So again, any type of thing that we think about in regards to boats and souls and all this other type of stuff and anchors, there's one end that's here and there's another end that's here to play with the pastor's metaphor. There's an anchor that's going into our soul. So this, this, we're holding on one end here. This is where it's anchored. And then the line is going somewhere else. Where is that line going is the question. Well, he answered, he knows we're gonna ask that question. So he answers that question. It's a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. 
We're going to have to get back into the passion narrative, the, the closing parts of the gospel, Easter, Good Friday type of stuff here, but walk with me. When Jesus is on the cross, he's there, he's hanging, he cries out, Lama, Lama, Sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he cries out, it is finished. At that very moment, the sky turns to black, and the Bible tells us that what is torn right down the middle into? The veil, the curtain that separated at the temple. So you have this temple. That was supposedly the place. And, and that's where everybody who was Hebrew thought this is the place where God resides. He doesn't reside just out in the courts. He fully resides in the Holy of Holies. That's the most holy place. The high priest was only allowed to even go in there once a year. And when he would go in there, they would tie a rope around his legs and put jingly bells on him just in case he had some bad stuff going on in his life that nobody knew about. And he got in the Holy of Holies and God was like, and killed him. So they could drag him out because they weren't gonna go in there and pull him out by his ankles. They would just, oh, man, he's been in there for a long time. How much sin is he getting rid of? And they would, you know, they realized, man, something smells in there and they'd just pull him out. He's saying in this passage, where the soul tied up, where that rope leads to, where it has gone is into the inner place. The veil has now been torn. The separation from humanity and divinity has now been blown wide open as divinity became humanity, died humanity's sins so that that connection could be made new. And so if you're asking yourself, well, does that mean that like I'm connected to the temple? What are we talking about there? You need to understand that even the Hebrew, as majestic as it was, the, the temple that they had there was supposed to represent the temple of God, the altar, the heavenly altar of God that exists in his heavenly realm that no eyes that are still down here on planet earth have ever laid on. And so what he's saying is there is a connection for those of you who are in Christ from your soul wrapped around that ever so tightly that is fully connected to the place where Jesus has now gone into the innermost holy of holies, seated at the right hand of God and ultimate perfection. And so there's a connection between us here and him there. And that anchor is the only thing that gives us true hope in life down here on planet earth. He says, Jesus has gone as a forerunner. That word there is prodromos. It implies, it actually, he's playing with a lot of nautical terms here. A lot of times in the Mediterranean, there would be certain ports that a larger ship could not get through. And they actually called a certain type of boat, the prodromos or the forerunner. And what this boat would do is it would navigate out to where the larger vessel was. It would take the rope and the anchor onto it. And then it would go back and navigate the sketchy waters by itself. One that if, if the guy out there in the big boat tried to get through, he'd end up on the rocks. He'd end up messed up. He takes it, navigates all the way through, blazes that trail. And then what that boat does is it winches the larger boat in so that it avoids the thing that would, be called, that would cause catastrophic failure to that vessel. And what the pastors of the church in Hebrews is trying to do here is he's explaining that is who Jesus is. He's the one who goes where you could not have gone. You could not have entered the Holy of Holies and ever atoned for the sins of all creation. You could not have made yourself a way back to get to God. But if you place your faith in the Son of God, now there's an anchor that goes around your soul and inch by inch winches you to where you belong. And that's why he says, he is the forerunner. He has blazed the trail that you never could and he has done it on our behalf. He is the priest who intercedes. More to come on Melchizedek next week. 
And so we look at this and we see this and the point that I need you to understand that I believe this pastor to the church and me to you as a church is trying to make over and over again is hope is a who. I don't know what it is that you're hoping in. We, we have all sorts of hopes down here on planet Earth. Like we're hoping that we get a good job. We're hoping in that some boy at school notices us or we actually can get a girlfriend at some point if you're middle school or high school or college or single. We're hoping that, you know, the results come back good. We're hoping that the cancer shrinks. We're hoping that I get a few more years with my grandma. We hope for all these things. I hope my kids don't join a street gang. You know, we hope in all these things. This is one of mine. We hope in all of these things. But again, I wanna take you back to the simple truth and reality. Our hope is not subjective. That's why we hope differently than the world hopes. We hope in a who, we hope in a person. Jesus is our hope. He is our only hope. Now, I love metaphors and sometimes I get caught up in them and I, and I spend a lot of time just going, eh, and, and sometimes I can be guilty of seeing things that aren't there or trying to make something that's not there. This particular week, I think I found what I was looking for. If you got a rope, all right? I, got, I, I was really fascinated on the rope thing. Where's the end of this rope at? They moved this and they messed it up, man, you guys. All right, there it is. All right, so we got a rope. <clears throat> All right, now, he's saying in this passage that something is connected to a soul, right? We'll, we'll call that up in here, all right? And then the other end is where? Wherever God is, <laughs> heavenly realm. He, he's in the inner place, at the, at, up in there, all right? So that's there. My question was, what's the rope? Like, what is it? Because at the end of the day, I'm here, it's there. All this is kind of contingent on what? This thing, right? Because if this doesn't do what it's supposed to do, I don't get to where I'm supposed to get. So, so the question becomes, is there a rope? And what is this rope? I think Jesus gives us a very good clue of what this is in the book of John, Gospel of John, chapter 14. He was teaching, he was about, he was about to get ready to leave. Got a Bible, I would encourage you to go there. John chapter 14. John 14, I love hearing those pages turn. It's my favorite thing. You know what I'd rather hear than claps and amens? That sound. You can come in, I'm not trying to beat up on the church you may have come from or anything else, but like what blesses my heart more than, more than you shouting me down, more than amens. And y'all can keep doing that. I'm totally cool with that, by the way. <laughs> um, I love to hear that. But because if we were sitting around eating steak, that's the sound of the steak knife scraping across the plate. It's the sound of people who are hungry for God's word. I love, it's my favorite sound. All right, Hebrews, or not Hebrews, uh, John chapter 14, let's go to verse 25. This is Jesus talking. He's getting ready to go be crucified. It's the upper room discourse. He says these words, John 14, 25 through 27. These things I, I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. All right, so he's already alluding to the fact, he's, I'm leaving. I'm right here with you. No slack in the rope, rope's here. There's no, no, no inches, there's no distance. I'm with you. 
I've spoken all these things while I'm with you, verse 26, but the helper, some of you NIV stuff is gonna say advocate, the helper, the Holy Spirit, to make sure we're clear on what we're talking about here, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you how many things? All things that I have said to you. I love verse 27. Peace I leave with you. And when he says peace I leave with you, that's not just a capital P because it's the beginning of a sentence. When he says peace I leave with you, peace is personification of the very Holy Spirit that he is sending to them. The Spirit of God is peace. The Spirit of God doesn't just bring peace, he is peace. So when you have it, this is just maybe eye open for you. If you have the Holy Spirit, regardless of how anxious you feel right now, there is peace in you. Now, we need each other's help being able to figure out how to find it, how to feel it. But it's there because that's what it is. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives because the way the world gives peace is I got a lot of money. I'm at peace. The world gives peace. Everybody, you know, everybody likes me. I'm at peace. The world gives peace saying, oh, yeah, well, you, you got enough security. You have a cool bunker built in your backyard and all the rations you ever need for when the apocalypse happened. You can be at peace now. That's the way the world gives peace. Jesus' peace is different. It's a peace that's not contingent on circumstances. It's contingent on what your soul is anchored to. So when I read this passage, the only thing that I can see that Jesus is saying is this rope is the advocate, the helper, the winch that is the Holy Spirit. It's his way of saying, I have put this anchor in your soul it's a deposit guaranteeing your heavenly inheritance, what you're coming to, what you're going to, and what the Holy Spirit's job is. For every moment that you spend on this sin scarred, broken earth, the Holy Spirit's job is to continue to pull you in. I was talking to one of my, my favorite beloved saints who goes to church here, been in church here for years and years and years, and she was just expressing. She said, sometimes I just, I just feel sad. And I, and I like, can I just person like, I sometimes just get, I feel frustrated. And I know her walk with Jesus. I know she's saved and secure. And I said, sometimes sadness is really homesickness. And I feel like that's what the Holy Spirit was leading me to say to her. And I'm not, you know, look at my great wisdom. Most of the time I get those interactions at, in front of church wrong. I say, oh, I should have never said that to that lady. But you, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? That stuff that you get down here where your soul and your spirit, you just feel tired. You just feel this ache, right? It's, it's a homesickness because if there is a gravitational pull that is, if the Holy Spirit is in you, is taking you there. Now, what I believe this means is our hope, it has a rope and that rope is the Holy Spirit. Now, where we get down here is going, this is the way most of us think about our relationship with Jesus. Okay, well, it's there, and it's up to me now to just make sure I white knuckle and hold on to this thing super good. And if I hold on super good to this rope, like I, I'm anchored, and as long as I hold on super tight, then we're good to go, Jesus. Me and you, look at me holding on as best that I can. And then we get distracted. Squirrel, we squirrel mode. But, but friends, what is this tied to? 
There's a reason he says this is not tied to your hands. There's a reason he, he does say hold fast. But I wanna show you what is holding on to you so that you don't get it twisted that it's all contingent on you holding on to it. The Apostle Paul um, in the book of Philippians, amazing passage of scripture that hopefully rounds all this out and makes it something that if I could take everything that I've preached today and just put it in one verse, it's right here. Apostle Paul, he, he's talking about all these, um, sh- these good things that are to come. He's talking about the glory and the majesty of Christ. He goes off on one of those grace grenades and just is blowing it all up in Philippians 3. And he says, hey, 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 before you get crazy and think about this, I actually have not obtained all of this yet. I, I have not only arrived at my goal. Paul's saying, there's still work to be done. I'm not finished. I know that that there is a place that I'm being winched into. There's a place where my soul desperately longs to be that I was actually created for. And I can feel it every time I resist sin. I can feel it when I wake up in the morning, my body doesn't work like it used to. There is something inside of me that is straining on towards this goal. He says, I press on, I love this, to take hold of that for which Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus took hold of me. The point he's making is me getting from where my soul is anchored to where it's anchored to is not contingent on my grip strength. It's contingent on the grace of God and Jesus, the one who took hold of me. Now the question is, has Jesus taken hold of you? Here's how you know the answer to that question. Are you holding on to him? This is the evidence. We talk about how do I know if I'm saved? Over and over again through the passage of Hebrew, what Paul is talking about here, he says, you will know that Jesus has taken hold of you by you holding on to him, by your steadfast holding on, persevering in your faith. If you are not, then you are not surrendered to the one who desperately longs to rescue out of the storm that your boat, your life is in. He has pulled his boat up right beside you. He can beckon, call, plead with you to walk the deck off of your boat and say, I am dead to my boat, I'm dead to my life. I walk the plank and I jump into yours. But he is not going to force you off of your boat if that is what you love the most. Now, he will pull his boat up right beside you. I believe he's doing that very much today. He will pull it right up beside you, beckon, call, plead, continue to show you the gospel truth over and over and over and over again so that you are wooed into a loving relationship with him so that your soul finally gets an anchor. So it's not wondering, bouncing back and forth between his approval and her approval and this significance and those amount of finances that it finally finds an anchor and it knows I am created for something far greater than this world could ever offer. I am heading there. That's where my hope is. That's who my hope is in. Now, today I wanna pull at Jesus and not end with an imperative, not end with a go do this. I, I, wanna, I wanna do what Jesus did oftentimes and just give you a question to go and chew on and marinate on as you navigate through this verse. Here's what I'd ask you to go away with this week. What do you do when the promises of God seem to work slower than they were promised? What are, to make it practical for right now, what are you doing 
with the promises that God has given you and how they seem to be working slower than what he promised. That freedom from that addiction, pull, stronghold in your life that you know and you believe and you, you, you claim it in God's word that that is there. Still fighting, still working. What do you do when the promises seem to come slower than they were promised? I wanna invite you into some things that I believe maybe you could do. First, if you're in a really bad storm, you need to get other people around you. What did, the, what did he say in verse 12? He said, we need to be imitators of those who have already inherited the promise. We need, to, we need to look around and see those who in our walk, in our faith, who not perfectly, but we need to look around. And I don't think he's just saying like, okay, we'll just look at Abraham. I think you can look around at our row, at your row, at MCC and go, there are some people who have seen the promises of God come about in their life and I need their help. One of the ways you can do that, is we offer lay counseling. If you're in the midst of a storm and you feel like, man, I don't, I don't know where my anchor's at. I don't know what's going on. I, I would invite you into that. You can go online, you can find that lay counseling. You come down here and talk to me afterwards. Do not go through a storm by yourself. The other thing is, you knew I was gonna say that. gonna be anchored. I believe there's no better place than to anchor your identity in the word of God. So this week, I'm praying you go there. You find the truth. Because if you're not careful, you'll, you'll, God's made this promise. He said he's gonna do this. And you'll go start you know, reaching out to one of your girlfriends and going, hey, you know, well, I feel like I should do this. but And then you get their bad advice. And I don't know, there's, there's, there's a guy version of that. Guys, we don't even bother asking for advice. We just go do stupid stuff on our own. That's usually what we do. Right, guys? Yeah. I'm not gonna tell anybody. And I'm gonna try to hide it when I mess up. And I'm never gonna ask anybody for help when I do either. Which is, we need each other. But sometimes, we gotta go here first. Most of the time, we gotta go here first. So that you know what you hear from somebody else if it does or doesn't line up with this. So my question is, right now, does it feel like you're holding on to hope or do you really feel hope holding on to you? As friend, he is. And I pray you see that, feel that, and experience that as you commune with him today. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for these moments where we could come and talk and lean into your word. And I pray that as we get ready to receive the sacrament of Holy Communion that this broken body and this torn apart flesh hearkens us even back to that old covenant oath that you made, an oath that you knew we never could keep. And Jesus, we thank you that it was you there who was torn apart. It was you there covered in blood. It was you there taking the responsibility and taking on the punishment of the oath breaker so that we could inherit the oath and the promise to be children of God. We praise you for that. And I pray that if there's somebody here who doesn't know you, 
whose soul is not anchored to the King of heaven, that they would surrender, that they would walk the plank today and surrender their life to you through baptism, through prayer, through repentance. They would give it all to get it all back from you. In your name.